Chapter forty three, part three of The Heir of Redcliffe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Heir of Redcliffe by Charlotte Young. Chapter forty three, part three. Charles and Philip, meanwhile, proceeded excellently together each very anxious for the comfort of the other. Philip was a good deal overwhelmed at first by the quantity of business on his hands, and setting about it while his head was still weak would have seriously hurt himself again, if Charles had not come to his help, worked with a thorough good will, great clearness and acuteness, and surprised Philip by his cleverness and perseverance. He was elated at being of so much use, and begged to be considered for the future as Philip's private secretary, to which the only objection was that his handwriting was as bad as Philip's was good. But it was an arrangement so much to the benefit of both parties that it was gladly made. Philip was very grateful for such valuable assistance, and Charles amused himself with triumphing in his importance, when he should sit in state on his sofa at Hollywell, surrounded with blue books, getting up the statistics for some magnificent speech of the honourable member for Morworth. In the meantime, Charles and Amabel saw no immediate prospect of their party returning from Ireland, and thought it best to remain at Redcliffe, since Philip had so much to do there, and, besides, events were occurring at Kilcoran which would have prevented his visit, even without his illness. One of the first drives that Charles and Philip took, after the latter was equal to any exertion, was to Thorndale. There Charles was much amused by the manner in which Philip was received, and he himself, for his sake, and as he said to Amabel on his return, there was no question now that the blame of spoiling Philip did not rest solely at Hollywell. Finding only Lady Thorndale at home, and hearing that Lord Thorndale was in the grounds, Philip went out to look for him, leaving Charles on the sofa, under her ladyship's care. Charles, with little exaggeration, professed that he had never been so flattered in his whole life, as he was by the compliments that reflected on him as the future brother-in-law of Philip, and that he had readily begun to think even Laura not half sensible enough of her own happiness. Lady Thorndale afterwards proceeded to inquiries about the de Courcy family, especially Lady Eveline, and Charles, enlightened by Charlotte, took great delight in giving descriptions of his cousin's charms, for which he was rewarded by very plain intimations of the purpose for which her son James was gone to Kilcorn. On talking the visit over, as they drove home, Charles asked Philip if he had guessed his friend's intentions. Yes, he answered. Then you never took the credit of it. Why did you not tell us? I knew it from himself, in confidence. Oh, said Charles, amusing himself with the notion of the young man's dutifully asking the permission of his companion, unshaken in allegiance though the staff might be broken, and the book drowned deeper than did ever plummet sound. Philip spoke no more, and Charles would ask no more, for Philip's own affairs of the kind were not such as to encourage talking of other people's. No explanation was needed why he should now promote an attachment which he had strongly disapproved while James Thorndale was still in the army. A day or two after, however, came a letter from Charlotte, bringing further news, at which Charles was so amazed that he could not help communicating it at once to his companions. So! Eveline won't have him! "'What?' exclaimed both. "'You don't mean that she's refused Thorndale,' said Philip. 
"'Even so,' said Charles. "'Charlotte says he is gone. "'Poor Mr. Thorndale left us this morning, "'after a day of private conferences, "'in which he seems to have had no satisfaction, "'for his resolute dignity and determination "'to be agreeable all the evening were, <clears throat> were great. "'Mabel cannot get at any of the real reasons from Eveline, "'though I think I could help her, but I can't tell you.' "'Charlotte means mischief,' said Charles, as he concluded. "'I'm very sorry,' said Philip. "'I don't think Lady Eveline would have been able to estimate Thorndale. "'It will be a great disappointment. "'The inclination has been of long standing. "'Poor Thorndale!' "'It would have been a very good thing for Eva,' said Amabel. "'Mr. Thorndale is such a sensible man.' "'And I thought his steady sense was just what was wanting "'to bring out all her good qualities "'that are running to waste in that irregular home,' said Philip. "'What can have possessed her?' "'Aye, something must have possessed her,' said Charles. "'Eva was always ready to be fallen in love with, on the shortest notice, "'and if there was not something prior in her imagination, "'Thorndale would not have had much difficulty. "'By the by, depend on it, tis the tutor.' "'Philip looked a little startled, but instantly reassuring himself, said, "'George Fielder? Impossible. You have never seen him.' "'Ah, don't you remember her description?' said Amy, in a low voice, rather sadly. "'The very reason, Amy,' said Charles. "'It showed that he had attracted her fancy.' Philip smiled a little incredulously. "'Aye,' said Charles, "'you may smile, but your handsome men can little appreciate the attractiveness of an interesting ugliness. It is the way to be looked at in the end. Mark my words. It is the tutor.' "'I hope not,' said Philip, as if shaken in his confidence. "'Anyway, it is a bad affair. I am very much concerned for Thorndale.' So sincerely concerned that his head began to ache in the midst of some writing. He was obliged to leave it to Charles to finish, and go out to walk with Amy. Amabel came in before him, and began to talk to Charles about his great vexation at his friend's disappointment. "'I am almost sorry you threw out that hint about Mr. Fielder,' said she. "'Don't you remember how he was recommended?' "'Ah!' "'I had forgotten it was Philip's doing. "'A bit of his spirit of opposition,' said Charles. "'Were not the boys to have gone to Combe Prior?' "'Yes,' said Amabel. "'That is the thing that seems to have made him so unhappy about it. "'I am sure I hope it is not true,' she added, considering. "'For Charlie, you must know that Guy had an impression against him.' "'Had he?' said Charles, anxiously. "'It was only an impression, nothing he could accuse him of, nor mention to Lord Kilcorn. He would have told no one but me. But he had seen something of him at Oxford, and thought him full of conversation, very clever, only not the sort of talk he liked. I don't like that. Charlotte concurs in testifying to his agreeableness, and in the dearth of intellect I should not wonder at Eva's taking up with him. He would be a straw to the drowning. It looks dangerous. They were very anxious for further intelligence, but received none except that Philip had a letter from his friend, on which his only comment was a deep sigh, and, poor Thorndale, she knows little of what she has thrown away. Letters from Kilcoran became rare. Laura scarcely wrote at all to Philip, and though Mrs. Edmonston wrote as usual, she did not notice the subject, while Charlotte's gravity and constraint, when she did achieve a letter to Charles, were in such contrast to her usual free and would-be satirical style, that such eyes as her brother's could hardly fail to see that something was on her mind. 
So it went on week after week, Charles and Amabel wondering when they should ever have any notice to go home, and what their family could be doing in Ireland. October had given place to November, and more than a week of November had passed, and here they still were, without anything like real tidings. At last a letter came from Mrs. Edmonston, which Amabel could not read without one little cry of surprise and dismay, and then had some difficulty in announcing its contents to Philip. A Kilcoran, November 8th. My dearest Amy, you will be extremely surprised at what I have to tell you, and no less grieved. It has been a most unpleasant, disgraceful business from beginning to end, and the only comfort in it to us is the great discretion and firmness that Charlotte has shown. I had better, however, begin at the beginning, and tell you the history as far as I understand it myself. You know that Mr. James Thorndale has been here, and perhaps you know it was for the purpose of making an offer to Eveline. Everyone was much surprised at her refusing him, and still more when, after much prevarication, it came out that the true motive was her attachment to Mr. Fielder, the tutor. It appears that they had been secretly engaged for some weeks, ever since they had perceived Mr. Thorndale's intentions, and not, as it was in poor Laura's case, an unavowed attachment, but an absolute engagement. And fancy Eva justifying it by Laura's example. There was, of course, great anger and confusion. Lord Kilcorn was furious. Poor Lady Kilcorn had nervous attacks. The gentleman was dismissed from the house, and supposed to be gone to England. Eva shed abundance of tears, but after a great deal of vehemence she appeared subdued and submissive. We were all very sorry for her, as there is much that is very agreeable and likely to attract her Mr. Fielder, and she always had too much mind to be wasted in such a life as she leads here. It seems as if Laura was a comfort to her, and Lady Kilcorn was very anxious we should stay as long as possible. This was all about three weeks, or a month ago. Eva was recovering her spirits, and I was just beginning a letter to tell you we hoped to be at home in another week, when Charlotte came into my room in great distress, to tell me that Eveline and Mr. Fielder were on the verge of a runaway marriage. Charlotte had been coming back alone from a visit to Grandmamma, and going down a path out of the direct way to recall bustle who had run on, she said, as if he scented mischief, came, to her great astonishment, on Eveline, walking arm in arm with Mr. Fielder. Charlie will fancy how Charlotte looked at them. They shuffled and tried to explain it away, but Charlotte was too acute for them, or, rather, she held steadily to, be that as it may, Lord Kilcorn ought to know it. They tried to frighten her with the horrors of betraying secrets, but she said none had been confided to her, and Mamma would judge. They tried to persuade her it was the way of all lovers, and appealed to Laura's example. But there little Charlotte was less to be shaken than on any point. I did not think them worthy to hear their names, she said to me, but I told them that I had seen that the truest and deepest of love had a horror of all that was like wrong, and as to Philip and Laura, they knew little what they suffered, besides, theirs was not half so bad. I verily believe that these were the very words she used to them. At last Eva threw herself on her mercy, and begged so vehemently that she would only wait another day, that she suspected, and, with sharpness very like Charlie's, forced from Eva that they were to marry on the next morning. Then she said it would be a great deal better that they should abuse her and call her a spy, than do what they would repent of all their lives. She begged Eva's pardon, and cried so much that Eva was in hope she would relent, and then came straight to me, very unhappy, 
and not in the least triumphant in her discovery. You can guess what a dreadful afternoon we had. I don't think anyone was more miserable than poor Charlotte, who stayed shut up in my room all day, dreading the sight of anyone, and expecting to be universally called a traitor. The end was that after much storming, Lord Kilcorn, finding Eveline determined and anxious to save her the discredit of an elopement, has agreed to receive Mr. Fielder, and that they are to be married from this house on the 6th of December, though what they are to live on no one can guess. The Kilcorns are very anxious to put the best face on the matter possible, and have persuaded us, for the sake of the family, to stay for the wedding. Indeed, poor Lady Kilcorn is so completely overcome that I hardly like to leave her till this is over. How unpleasant the state of things in the house is, no one can imagine, and very, very glad shall I be to get back to Honeywell, and my Amy and Charlie. Dearest Amy, your most affectionate, L. Edmiston. The news was at length told, and Philip was indeed thunderstruck at this fresh consequence of his interference. It threatened at first to overthrow his scarcely recovered spirits, and but for the presence of his guests, it seemed as if it might have brought on a renewal of the state from which they had restored him. Yes, said Charles to Amy, when they talked it over alone, it seems as if good people could do wrong with less impunity than others. It is rather like the saying about fools and angels. Light-minded people see the sin, but not the repentance, so they imitate the one without being capable of the other. Here are Philip and Laura, finishing off like the end of a novel, fortunate and all, and setting a very bad example to the world in general. "'As the world cannot see below the surface,' said Amy, "'how distressed Laura must be. You see, Mama does not say one word about her.' Philip had not much peace till he had written to Mr. Thorndale, who was going at once to Germany, not liking to return home to meet the condolences. Miss Edmonston had nearly the whole correspondence of the family on her hands, for neither of her daughters liked to write and she gave the description of the various uncomfortable scenes that took place. Lord de Courcy's stern and enduring displeasure, and his father's fast subsiding violence, Lady Cocoran's distress, and the younger girl's excitement and amusement. But she said she thought the very proper and serious way in which Charlotte viewed it would keep it from doing them much harm, provided, as it was much to be feared, Lord Kilcorn did not end by keeping the pair always at home, living upon him till Mr. Fielder could get a situation." In fact, it was difficult to know what other means there were of providing for them. At last the wedding took place, and Mrs. Edmonston wrote a letter, divided between indignation at the foolish display that had attended it, and satisfaction at being able at length to fix the day for the meeting at Hollywell. No one could guess how she longed to be home again, and to be once more with Charlie. Nor were Charles and Amabel less ready to go home, though they could both truly say that they had much enjoyed their stay at Redcliffe. Philip was to come with them, and it was privately agreed that he should return to Redcliffe no more till he could bring Laura with him. Amabel had talked of her sister to Mrs. Ashford, and done much to smooth the way, and even on the last day or two held a few consultations with Philip as to the arrangements that Laura would like. One thing, however, she must ask for her own pleasure. Philip, said she, you must let me have this piano. His answer was by look and gesture. And I want very much to ask a question, Philip. Will you tell me which is Sir Hugh's picture? You have been sitting opposite to it every day at dinner. That! exclaimed Amy. From what I heard, I fully expected to have known Sir Hugh in a moment, 
and I often looked at that one, but I never could see more likeness than there is in almost all the pictures about the house. She went at once to study it again, and wondered more. I have seen him sometimes look like it, but it is not at all the strong likeness I expected. Philip stood silently gazing, and certainly the countenance he recalled, pleading with him to desist from his willfulness, and bending over him in his sickness, was far unlike an expression to the fiery youth before him. In a few moments more, Amabel had run upstairs, and brought down Mr. Sheen's portrait. There was proved to be more resemblance than either of them had at first sight credited. The form of the forehead, nose, and short upper lip were identical. So were the sharply defined black eyebrows, the color of the eyes, and the way of standing in both had a curious similarity. But the expression was so entirely different, that strict comparison alone proved that Guy's animated, contemplative, and most winning countenance was in its original lineaments entirely the same with that of his ancestor. Although Sir Hugh's was then far from unprepossessing, and bore as yet no trace of his unholy passions, it brought to Amabel's mind the shudder with which Guy had mentioned his likeness to that picture, and seemed to show her the nature he had tamed. Philip, meanwhile, after one glance at Mr. Sheen's portrait, which he had not before seen, had turned away, and stood leaning against the window-frame. When Amy had finished her silent comparison, and was going to take her treasure back, he looked up and said, "'Do you dislike leaving that with me for a few minutes?' "'Keep it as long as you like,' said she, going at once, and she saw him no more till nearly an hour after, when, as she was coming out of her own room, he met her, and gave it into her hands, saying nothing except a smothered, "'Thank you,' but his eyelids were so swollen and heavy that Charles feared his head was bad again, while Amy was glad to perceive that he had had the comfort of tears. Everyone was sorry to wish Lady Morville and her brother good-bye, only consoling themselves with the hope that their sister might be like them, and as to little Mary, the attention paid to her was so devoted and universal that her mamma thought it very well she should receive the first ardour of it while she was too young to have her head turned. They again slept a night in London, and in the morning Philip took Charles for a drive through the places he had heard of, and was much edified by actually beholding. They were safely at home the same evening, and on the following the Hollywell party was once more complete, gathered round Charles's sofa in a confusion of welcomes and greetings. Mrs. Edmonston could hardly believe her eyes. So much had Charles's countenance lost its invalid look, and his movements were so much more active. Amabel, too, though still white and thin, had a life in her eye and an air of health most unlike her languor and depression. Everyone looked well and happy but Laura, and she had a worn, faded, harassed aspect, which was not cheered even by Philip's presence. Indeed, she seemed almost to shrink from speaking to him. She was the only silent one of the party that evening, as they gathered round the dinner or tea-table, or sat divided into threes or pairs, talking over the subjects that would not do to be discussed in public. Charlotte generally niched into Amy's old corner by Charles, hearing all about Radcliffe or talking about Ireland. Mrs. Edmiston and Amy were on opposite sides of the ottoman, their heads meeting over the central cushion, talking in low, fond, inaudible tones. Mr. Edmiston going in and out of the room, and joining himself to one or the other groups, telling and hearing news, and sometimes breaking up the pairs. And then Mrs. Edmiston came to congratulate Charles on Amy's improved looks, or Charlotte pressed up close to Amy to tell her about Grandmamma. For Charlotte could not talk about Eveline, 
she had been so uncomfortable at the part she had had to act, that all the commendation she received was only like pain and shame, and her mother was by no means dissatisfied that it should be so, since a degree of forwardness had been her chief cause of anxiety in Charlotte, and it now appeared that without losing her high spirit and uncompromising sense of right, her sixteenth year was bringing with it feminine reserve. Laura lingered late in Amabel's room, and when her mother had wished them good-night, and left them together, she exclaimed, "'Oh, Amy, I'm so glad to come back to you. I've been so very miserable.' "'But you see he is quite well,' said Amy. "'We think him looking better than in the summer.' "'Oh, yes. Oh, Amy, what have you not done? If you could guess the relief of hearing you were with him, after that suspense—' but as if losing that subject in one she was still more eager about. What did he think of me? My dear, said Amabel, I don't think I am the right person to tell you that. You saw how it struck him when he heard of my share in it. Yours? Mamma never mentioned you. Always kind, said Laura. Oh, Amy, what will you think of me when I tell you I knew poor Eva's secret all the time? What could I do when Eva pleaded my own case? It was very different, but she would not see it, and I felt as if I was guilty of all. No, oh, how I envied Charlotte. Dear Laura, no wonder you are unhappy. Nothing hitherto has been equal to it, said Laura. There was the misery of his silence, and the anxiety that you, dearest, freed me from. Then no sooner was that over than this was confided to me. Think of what I felt when Eva put me in mind of a time when I argued in favor of some such concealment in a novel. No, you can never guess what I went through, knowing that he would think me weak, blamable, unworthy. Nay, he blames himself too much to blame you. No, that he must not do. It was my fault from the beginning. If I had but gone at once to Mamma. Oh, I am so glad, exclaimed Amy, suddenly. Glad? I mean, said Amy, looking down, now that you have said that, I am sure you will be happier. Happier? Now I feel and see how I have lowered myself even in his sight, said Laura, drooping her head and hiding her face in her hands, as she went on in so low a tone that Amy could hardly hear her. I know it all now. He loves me still, as he must whatever he has once taken into that deep, deep heart of his. He will always, but he cannot have that honoring, trusting, confiding love that you enjoyed and deserved, Amy, that he would have had if I had cared first for what became me. If I had only at first told Mamma, he would not even have been blamed. He would have been spared half this suffering and self-reproach. He would have loved me more. Eva might not have been led astray. At least she could not have laid it in my charge, and I could lift up my head she finished, as she hung it almost to her knees. Her sister raised the head, laid it on her own bosom, and kissed the cheeks and the brow again and again. Dearest, dearest Laura, I am so sorry for you, but I am sure you must feel freer and happier now that you know it all, and see the truth. I don't know, said Laura, sadly. At least you will be better able to comfort him. No, no, I shall only add to his self-reproach. He will see more plainly what a wretched, weak creature he fancied had firmness and discretion. Oh, what a broken reed I have become to him. 
There is strength and comfort for us all to lean upon, said Amy. But you ought to go to bed. Shall I read to you, Laura? You are so tired. I should like to come and read you to sleep. Laura was not given to concealments. That fatal one had been her only insincerity, and she never thought of doing likewise than telling the whole of her conduct in Ireland to Philip. She sat alone with him the next morning, explained all, and entreated his pardon, humiliating herself so much that he could not bear to hear her. "'It was the fault of our whole lifetime, Laura,' said he, recovering himself, when a few agitated words had passed on either side. "'I taught you to take my dictum for law, and abused your trust, and perverted all the best and most precious qualities. It is I who stand first to bear the blame, and would that I could bear all the suffering. But as it is, Laura, we must look to enduring the consequences all our lives, and give each other what support we may. Laura could hardly brook his self-accusation, but she could no longer argue the point, and there was far more peace and truth before them than when she believed him infallible, and therefore justified herself for all she had done in blind obedience to him. End of chapter 43